Well, all right. Well, we have come to around the middle portion of 1 John chapter 3. So we'd ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. And the verses that we will come from this morning will be from verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10 of 1 John chapter 3. Title for the last sermon was Those in Christ Commit No Sin. I thought it would be fitting to be just as absolute as John in his writing as we see in scripture. Title for this sermon will be Those in Christ Are Righteous. We'll read 1 John chapter 3, 7 through 10, and then we'll get into the message as we read 1 John 3, 7 through 10, it reads, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are made known or manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. Let us say a brief prayer. We'll get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, give us the hearts this morning to be able to receive your word. Help me to expound it. Help us to go through each verse with the love, admonition, exhortation that you have called us out to do. Thank you for these great epistles. Thank you for the writings of the apostles that we may be able to follow after Jesus Christ. Thank you for Christ being the word expounding the word and living out the word that we might know what true righteousness is. In the name of Jesus, help us this morning. Amen. When we look at these verses, we have to take a brief moment because the Greek language is very, very verb heavy. So we expounded on this last time, so I'll take a brief moment to kind of explain. In John's absolute language that he is using here, when he uses things like those in Christ commit no sin, those in Christ are righteous, he is making a contrast between sin and righteousness. It does not mean that we believe in sinless perfection. We went through this last week. But but what it does mean is that we understand that if we are in Christ, that God doesn't look upon us as we are sinners. He looks upon us as if we are Christ, or rather we have his righteousness. So the absolute language is necessary because John is not wasting time with formalities or greetings or anything else. He wants to encourage the believers that he is speaking with. And you'll see this theme go throughout all of the first John, second John, and third John in the epistles of John. So we see that today's subject kind of surrounds around righteousness. 
whereas the last subject was around sin. So, righteousness is impossible to obtain apart from Christ. In our fallen nature, without the holiness of God and the purifying work of the Spirit, righteousness under the best intentions, surrounded by the best circumstances, and even ruled by the best man-made moral conventions, have proven to still fall short of actual and true righteousness. Even in our writings, even in this sermon, the only way we can describe righteousness, the only way we can even orient our minds, ourselves around it, to understand it, is to describe its opposite, which is unrighteousness. Last week we discussed sin and how it means to come short of God's law. It is to miss the mark of righteous perfection that God has laid out as a standard. As we said it last time, any sin, whether we think it's big or small, to God in his complete holiness, all sin to him is exceedingly sinful. Therefore, when we think of righteousness, it is the exact opposite of the Lord. Excuse me, opposite of the Lord's standard. Righteousness is perfect. It is the true and faithful adherence to God's law. Sin misses the mark while righteousness makes the mark. Sin breaks the law of God. Righteousness keeps the law of God. Any sin falls exceedingly short of the law of God, putting the ones who sin in what? Lawlessness. But righteousness meets the perfect requirements of God's law, and so the one who fulfills righteousness is righteous. Now we know that the only one who was able to fulfill the perfect righteousness or the righteous requirements of God's law was, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But man in his futile efforts to reject God has tried to create his own righteousness. Man creates eugenics. This is the idea that through biology or, 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 or biological study, and planned breeding of specific human beings, we could obtain a perfect race or humanity. Mankind believed that through getting rid of specific defects in human populations by sterilizing certain undesirable populations, that they would obtain perfection, righteousness. Because in their immoral minds, morality was tied directly to the physical nature of man rather than the spiritual. The problem is the spiritual affects the spirit. Excuse me. The problem is the spiritual affects the physical. The Bible says in Romans 5:12 that through one man sin entered the whole world. Everything we see that is wrong in the natural world. All unrighteousness in the world, death, disease, disaster, and degeneracy, all of it is because the fallen spiritual nature of man. So making a perfect physical or humanity won't work to undo this curse. Mankind has tried social and political economics to fix the problem of unrighteousness. Because we all know that if only mankind had enough resources and money, he would not sin, right? 
I mean, if you have enough money, you have no reason to steal, right? If you have enough or the same resources as your neighbor, you would have no reason to murder. Well, the enlightened man-made philosophies of socialism, fascism, communism, were responsible for the 20th century being the most murderous century in human history. Under these beliefs, the regimes, it is estimated that almost 190 million people died during this period. For context, that number is more than 10% of the world's population in 1913. This reminds me of the lesson that Jesus taught the disciples after the conversation with the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, verse 23, he says, Then Jesus said unto, said, said unto his disciples, Verily or truly I say to you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were exceedingly amazed, astonished, and they asked a question. Who then can be saved? They were amazed and discouraged because they associated wealth with salvation. But the condition of the outward often has no connection with the inward. Just because the young ruler was rich and had status did not mean he was righteous. It was actually the opposite. And when we confronted, excuse me, and, and when he was confronted with, the, with true righteousness, Jesus Christ, he went away, what? Sorrowful. But Christ, being so righteous and gracious, in verse 26 of that same chapter, Matthew 19, he says, verse 26, it says this, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men... This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With men, it is impossible if you are coming to God with the works of man or with man's righteousness. You're wasting your time because it is an impossibility to please God. But with God, everything all fulfillment of the law is not only possible, but they were staring at the fullness of God in bodily form that came to do the impossible. And that was righteousness. This is why no social, economic, biological, psychological system of works righteousness will work for fallen man. Man is imperfect spiritually, he is imperfect physically, and he is imperfect psychologically. None of us have the capacity to fulfill or even practice righteousness. This is why Jesus warns as he preaches in Matthew 5.20. After speaking about how he, how he would fulfill the law of God, he says this. He says, Matthew 5.20, he says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What kind of righteousness did the scribes and Pharisees have? They had a righteousness where they studied the law of God. They wrote the law of God. They recited the law of God daily. They had a righteousness that was committed to the temple upkeep. They had a righteousness 
of cleanliness. They would not eat before they had performed rituals to ensure the pots and the pans and cups were clean. They had a righteousness of fellowship. They would not break bread or have dinner or a meal with those who were considered to be immoral or vile. No prostitute, no dirty or poor person, no one who didn't have the bloodline of a Jew in some extreme cases. They had a righteousness of diet. They would not dare eat any unclean animal, and they would not take anything from those who had ate unclean animals. But most of all, they had a righteousness of self. They believed that they were righteous not because of God, but because of who they were. God's chosen people. God's people who had been given the sign of circumcision and God's people who had been given the word of God from the finger of God himself. From the prophet of God himself, Moses. In other words, you can tell us anything, but what you can't tell us is, is that we are not children of God. We are not righteous. Well, Jesus says, that's not enough. Because unless your righteousness exceeds all of that I just mentioned and more, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He even called them what? A brood of vipers, children of the devil. This is why we sing songs like All I Have is Christ. Because it is true. Christ is our only hope and our only surety. So with that being said, that's why I use the title today, Those in Christ are Righteous. Let's go back up to 1 John 3 and verse 7. What does it read? Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Coming off the statement of sin and those who commit sin, John again makes a contrast by talking about righteousness. As we saw last time, the one who commits sin is lawless. The one who makes a practice of continual sin is without the law of God. So likewise, it can be said that the one who commits themselves to a practice, a lifestyle of, of, of unrighteousness, or rather, righteousness in Christ is righteous. I keep giving us the reminder that everything in regards to righteousness has to be in Christ. Because nothing that we do apart from him is righteous. We would not know how to practice righteousness without the pattern of works from Christ. We would not know how to distinguish or discern the type of righteousness we must do without Christ. We thought righteousness was not committing adultery. That is, until Jesus raised the bar of our thinking. You see, adultery is not just the act of physical, immoral, sexual relations. It is the lust you have in the heart when you look upon a person with lust. We thought righteousness was not committing murder. But as Jesus, and in this epistle, John says multiple times that hatred, more specifically, hatred of your brother is murder. See, the standard of righteousness Jesus exposed to us is the standard that God always had because he is a holy God. 
And since Jesus is God, made flesh, he shows us the way in himself of righteousness. Which is why at the end of the verse it says, even he is righteous. We do righteousness, we practice a just and upright walk only because Jesus teaches us and walks before us, which is why we follow him. And make no mistake, we who are saved are examples of righteousness. We are called to be what? Salt and light. The word even says that if we are salt, but if, but if that salt loses its savor, then it is good for nothing. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be followers or imitators of me as I also am of Christ. So the Christian who has a pattern of righteousness and practices a track record and a lifestyle of righteousness, even as Christ Jesus is righteous, that Christian is proving that they are righteous. Let's look at the next verse. We'll stay here for a bit. 1 John 3 and verse 8. It reads, He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is interesting. Because John takes us back to the beginning. But as we define what the beginning meant in our very first messages when we started this epistle a while ago, we need to go to the origins here and define this one. Now there is no small discussion to what beginning means here among theologians, but I believe that we have plenty of contextual clues within this verse to know what John is speaking of. When he uses the term beginning, he is not speaking of the beginning of the law because there is no sin or lie in God's law, for the law of God is perfect, Psalm 19. He is not speaking of the beginning of creation, or more specifically the Garden of Eden, and let me tell you why. The word of God does not say that the world was plunged into sin by the sin of one serpent, or by Satan, no. God places the blame of death and sin entering the world on Adam, rightly so. So this beginning is speaking of original sin and not the original sin of humanity. Because the person being exposed here is who? The devil. Eve was indeed, was indeed deceived. But was that Satan's first sin? Think about it. What we just talked about. When we sin, do we sin unconsciously? No. Sin develops in the heart first. We lie, we devise, we conceptualize a lie first. When we steal, we covet first. When we murder, we hate first. Evil, desire, intent, covetousness, and hatred are all sins of the heart and not of the hand. The execution of those sins are just the outpouring of what is already within the heart. Now, to make this clear, we will have to do a little bit of Old Testament exposition here. So turn to Isaiah 14, 12. 
mostly because I want to place our minds rightly on the context of John's statement, but also when given the opportunity, it's always good to go over deep theological truths. Before we read this passage, and we'll go and we'll also read another passage that gives us more insight about Satan, I want you to know that the Bible often uses a person to point to the source of either evil or righteousness behind that person. When an Old Testament prophet speaks to a king and he speaks to a king's warnings and describes that king's judgment, there is sometimes a dual nature to the word of God. He is speaking to the king or about the king's historical context, but he is also speaking to the source, the origin of influence behind a king's behavior. This can, this can also be found in Psalms about David when scripture is speaking of King David, but it is also pointing to Messiah, to Christ that is to come. Examples of these are Psalm 41.9 where he talks about uh, the friend who shared bread has betrayed me. We know what, that, what happened with Jesus. Psalm 22, where it says, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. Psalm 1101, where it says, my, uh, uh, where, where it says, my Lord says to my Lord, sit now at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. On and on it goes. So this is commonplace in scripture. So let's read Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. What does it read? How are you fallen from heaven, O day star? Some translations say Lucifer, but it is more aptly translated as day star, son of the morning. How are you cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in your what? Heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. God declares in verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to hell, to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. Look at the verse. The five I wills. I will ascend. I will exalt. I will sit upon the whole of heaven, the congregation, the congregating group that is here in the sides of the highest place, the north. I will ascend above even the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I mean, what hubris, what arrogance, what pride. And we know what comes before, uh, after pride, right? A fall, destruction, or as the text says, Sheol, the pit. Before the Satan's rebellion, all the host of heaven only knew righteousness. But the harmony of heaven was disrupted when one angel thought that he could dethrone God. This was the first unrighteousness. Satan sought to unjustly take God's throne and, and dethrone God is what he thought. A throne that he did not earn, a throne that he did not create, a throne that he did not deserve, and, didn't, and, 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 and also, and belongs only to God. 
See, the unrighteousness wasn't in the fact that Satan went about to perform the act of rebellion, but it was the unrighteousness was that he told himself the lie that he could succeed. It was righteous for him to remain as one of the highest ranking cherubim in all of heaven. It was righteous for him to fulfill the purposes of singing praises to God. It was righteous for him to have great privilege of walking amidst the fiery stones of the throne of God because all of the wonderfully honorable privileges I just mentioned were given to him without merit of his own. Sound familiar? All of it was given by God. And God gives righteousness freely because he is righteous. Just like he gives righteousness to us, that's how John can distinguish between children of the devil, people who are of the devil, and people who are righteous, who are of Christ. Let's go to another verse in the Old Testament. Let's, go, let's turn to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 13. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet is speaking to the king of Tyre, which had become a powerful, rootless, ungodly king who had set himself up to be God, or so he sought to. And that assumption of making oneself out to be God is the ultimate sin of self-righteousness and pride. This theme harkens all the way back to 1 John, where he was warning believers not to be deceived by the one or the ones who set themselves up, up to be God, who were called what? Antichrist. It doesn't mean to be against Christ necessarily. It can mean that. But Antichrist, as we spoke about last time, means to put themselves in the place of God, the place of Christ. Ezekiel 28, for further context, in verse 13, what does he say? He says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, we know the king of Tyre can't be in the garden of Eden. King of Tyre is a man, right? Again, he's speaking to the influence behind the king of Tyre. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy timbrels and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers and have set thee so. Thou hast upon the, uh, excuse me, thou, thou, thou was upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence and you have sinned. Therefore, I will cast you profane out of the mountain of God and will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of brightness. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. See, the sin from the beginning that Satan committed was the sin of self-righteousness. And we could almost say that the sin of self-righteousness is where all of sins, all the other sins flow from. Think about it. All that he was and all that he was given, the beauty, the shining glory, the position, the holiness, 
His name, Daystar, son of the morning, shining one of the dawn. He deceived himself into believing that he had these things on his own. They came from himself. When in fact, all of his glory, all of his beauty, all of his intelligence, all of his high-ranking position, everything was made possible and given to him by God. Everything that he was, was of God. And he self-righteously proclaimed it to be all of himself. So you can see why God gets so upset when these repeating sins happen. This is a sin from old. This is influence. This is deception, which is why John opens up many times in saying, do not be deceived. Deception starts in the heart first. Turn back to 1 John 3. Verse 8. 1 John 3, verse 8. So now we have the full context of why John is saying this. So remember this context as we read through 1 John and further on in other passages. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose... For this reason, the Son of God was made known that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now you start to see why we went through the context of, de of detailing out the devil. Because it helps us tremendously to understand what the works of the devils are. The works of the devil are works of deception. He deceived himself into thinking he could overthrow God. He deceived Eve, who, was, who trafficked her rebellion to her husband, resulting in the fall of Adam. He is the price, excuse me, he is the prince of the power of the air that works to deceive those into disobedience. And he will be the one who will be released to deceive the nations. But the Son of God came that he might destroy the works of the devil, deception. The Son of God came that he might release us from his deception, release us from the slavery of what? Unrighteousness and all manner of sin that comes from being deceived. Now, this is not to say that we can use the old saying, the devil made me do it, right? No. When we commit sin, we, when we practice sin, we are indeed the ones doing it. And we will be held accountable for it. As with the devil, he will be held accountable for his deception by being cast into the lake of fire. All will be without excuse before God, but some will be excused and absolved of their sin by the blood and imputed righteousness of the Son of God, which is given without works or merit. All righteousness is of Christ. Those who are in Christ are righteous because of Christ. Let's go to verse 9, the first John. First John 3 and verse 9. It reads, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because 
he is born of God. We see this absolute strong language that John continues to use. We see this replayed and rehearsed, talked about being born of God, a new birth. In John 3, 4 through 6, he talks to Nicodemus. He says this to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Absolute language, absolute contrast. God is the contraster of darkness. He is all light. He is spirit but there is flesh. Now, I don't want to get too theologically technical, but I must say the nature of water and the spirit are significant here. Water is a representation of what? Purity. Water is also a representation of life, refreshing life. Water also, I couldn't help myself, has a human quality or reciprocity with our lives, with our physical lives. More than half of our adult bodies are 60% water. The heart and our brains are about 73% water. Our lungs, where we receive breath, is approximately 80% water. So life is tied to water. And the spirit needs no, needs no explanation. The spirit regenerates us unto new life. The spirit raises he quickens. He makes us alive in Christ. He is the reason why we are born anew. We remain for the time being in the flesh, but we have indeed been born again through the Spirit. You see, the seed that remains in the believer is the seed of the Spirit. The same Spirit that overshadowed the virgin, the same Spirit which made possible the miracle of Mary being able to conceive a child through spiritual seed within herself, having known no man, she bore a son, the Son of God, through seed. The Greek word for seed is sperma. It is where we derive our English word sperm, obviously. So God broke the curse of sin deception and death by conceiving a new man in his spirit. Truly God and also truly man, a new Adam, a new human, and through him a new humanity that would not fail, would not sin, and would no longer be the seed of who? The devil. So, as Christ, the Son of God, was born, through water and the spirit, we are also. This is why many texts point to the fact that we not only share in his death, but we share in his life. This is why we cannot sin 
or keep on practicing sin because his seed, the Spirit's seed, remains in us because we are born of God. This is why I say John is not writing to scold believers. He's not trying to make us feel bad by drawing these stark distinctions or make the church fearful. John is saying, don't you understand? You don't have anything to worry about because your salvation is sure precisely because you have been born again. You are sons and daughters, and he accepts you as his own because you are his own. He sees his seed. When he sees you, he sees the only unique son, the only begotten. He knows you because he knows his seed, which is in you. It is a blessed thing to be one with Christ, both in the outpouring nature of the contextual understanding of conception of the believer and fully one with Christ in the spirit. Let's go to our last verse. 1 John 3 and verse 10. Here it is. In this, in other words, for these reasons, the children of God are made known, manifest, and the children of the devil are also made known. Whosoever does, does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. The reason why John keeps emphasizing the love of one's brother is righteousness is because, number one, Jesus said that by this you will know that we are his, his what? Disciples. And two, sin is selfish and righteousness is selfless. Think about it. Everything we've gone over today shows that sin is selfish. Sin is breaking our, excuse me, sin is the breaking or transgression of God's law for the sake of personal pleasure. And righteousness is the keeping or the meeting of God's law for the glory of God. Sin is the indulgence of everything that is self, while righteousness is the denial of everything that is self. Ultimate righteousness, or should we say the ultimate display of righteousness, is love. More specifically, love of the brethren. When you love those who are in Christ, you show love to his seed, his body, his flesh. Remember, Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. So then, if we, when you love her, when you are displaying the ultimate practice of righteousness because loving those who believe, those who are married to Christ, is practicing love toward Christ. What did Christ say to Saul, later called Paul? Saul, Saul, why persecutest my church? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting 
me. He associates oneness with his believers because we are his bride. So our text says this. It says how we know the children of God as opposed to the children of the devil. This is how you can tell the seed with someone who belongs to God and someone who belongs to the devil. It is because those in Christ are righteous and without those in Christ and without Christ are not righteous. And you can tell by who they commit their allegiances to, what practices they have, what lifestyle they lead. The ones who are not in Christ practice unrighteousness by hating their brother. Those who hate the seed of the woman, hearkening back to Genesis, just like the devil who hates the seed of the woman. Because the seed will crush the serpent's head. But the seed of the woman will only have his heel bruised. And those in him love Christ. If you love Christ, you will love his bride. If you love his bride, you will practically work out your salvation with fear and trembling in a local body, in the church also universal. We are born again unto new life in God and we are separated from the children of disobedience. We obey because Christ obeyed. Christ associates himself with his church because he loves his bride. And just as a physical husband and a physical wife become one flesh, Christ is one with his church. And being one with his church, the Father accepts us on the Son's behalf. But most of all, this is why we believe in complete sovereignty and complete salvation security. Because the seed remains within the believer. And the line passes from beginning to end in that Christ gives us unmerited righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us, washing us with the word. We can go on and on. We can go to Ephesians and talk about how the husband is supposed to model Christ, but we'll never make it. But I like the words of Paul when he says, not as though I have already attained it, in other words, not as though I am already righteous, but I am pressing toward the mark of the higher calling of God so that I can attain it, what Christ has already attained for me. In Jesus, those who are in Christ are righteous. We can have confidence in our salvation. We don't falter, we don't lose it. Because when we fall, Christ is there to make intercession for us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we bless your name because of Christ. All is not only just owed to him, 
all things are made by him and he is worthy of all praise. We thank you for making us new, allowing us to have a spiritual birth that one day our bodies, our vile bodies will be transformed like his glorious body and we will live in your kingdom. We see that no one, no flesh and blood can enter your kingdom, not because of just because of the flesh and blood, but because of your holy and righteous nature, but because we must be born again, made new in your son, Jesus Christ, which is the only way. We pray that those who have not been made new we pray that they, not, that they might not be goats, that they might not be children of the devil, but they may fall upon their knees, understanding the gospel, repenting of their sin. And you said that no heart that is broken or contrite you will cast away. We know that you are faithful and just to forgive. We thank you for this great letter to the church of confidence, of absolute confidence, of absolute salvation, of absolute sanctification and glorification through your spirit, which is the seed that remains in us. Thank you for making us new and making us new each day as we practice righteousness only from the great and righteous practice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him is perfection, is the bar, let us meet it one day in glory, but let us tarry to meet it in our practice today. In Jesus' name, amen.